Founders Brewing Company has found a way to make an IPA you can enjoy anytime that's perfect for any occasion with their all-day IPA. At 4.7 ABV, you can still taste the hops, of course, but it's the complex array of malts and grains that make all-day IPA a beer that will grab your attention. That full flavor and low ABV is what continues to make it a staple in my fridge. Look for Founders in your favorite beer store or check out their full line of beer at foundersbrewing.com. Founders Brewing Company, born and brewed in Michigan since 1997. The Leslie Marshall Show, a true democracy in talk radio. Of, for, and by you, the people. Live from our nation's capital, it's Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. Welcome to Deadline D.C. with Brad Bannon. I'm Brad Bannon. Uh, I'm a national democratic political strategist, a columnist for The Hill in Washington, D.C., and a political analyst for news radio stations KNX in Los Angeles and WGN in Chicago. My company, Bannon... Uh, my uh, company uh, and the website is BannonCR.com is the sponsor of today's show. My company, Bannon Communications Research, polls for liberal uh, issue groups, labor unions, and Democrats. Today on the Deadline DC, we have two guests. In the first half hour, our guest is Rocio Zamora, who's a policy advocate with the Youth Justice Coalition. Uh, she's going to discuss uh, police reform with us. Then in the second half hour, our guest is national security expert, uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, who will discuss the crisis in the Middle East. Uh, but first, before we get to our first guest, uh, let's hear Joe Biden, uh, the president, uh, speak to Congress about police reform. My fellow Americans, we have to come together to rebuild trust between law enforcement and the people they serve, to root out systemic racism in our criminal justice system, and to enact police reform in George Floyd's name that passed the House already. I know Republicans have their own ideas and are engaged in a very productive discussions with Democrats in the Senate. We need to work together to find a consensus. But let's get it done next month by the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. That, of course, was President Biden discussing police reform uh, in, in his speech a couple of weeks ago to a joint session of Congress. Our first guest today is Rashia. Uh, Zamora, uh, who is a policy advocate for the Youth Justice Coalition. The Youth Justice Coalition works to build a youth-led movement to end police terror, mass incarceration, and criminalization of youth of color. The website for the Youth Justice Coalition is youthjusticela.org, and their Twitter handle is youthjusticela. Uh, Rocia, thanks for joining us today on Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. I'm glad you could make the time to be with us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
first of all, uh, I should say you're also worked with a group called the Stop Police Terror Coalition of California. Uh, could you talk about uh, the reason uh, you became involved in this issue with, with this problem in the first place? Um, yeah, so I became involved with the Stop Coalition, um, which is um, works closely with the Youth Justice Coalition. As an impacted family member, I had a cousin who was killed by um, a San Diego sheriff. Um, San Diego sheriff Christopher Villanueva actually shot my cousin 16 times in the back in 2017, just 11 months after he had already shot another Latino father 28 times um, with high caliber ammunition. And so, we fought for um, many years and in different avenues and I was looking for other spaces of support and that's where I found the Youth Justice Coalition and met some folks who told me about STOP and I joined the coalition with other impacted families to advocate for policies and support other families who were going through that process of losing a loved one to police violence. And was your uh, cousin's uh, murder ever adjudicated? So the the police officer was never held accountable. Um, the police officer was never charged or convicted. Um, there was a civil lawsuit in place, but the yeah the officer has not been held accountable for for committing two acts of murder. Uh, you know you see stories about uh, police violence all the time. There are some been very some very high profile case. I guess the latest would be the uh, uh, murder of George Floyd in Minneapolis. Uh, have cha things changed at all in the last four years? Is this problem uh, with police violence getting worse or what? No, it has. It, things have not changed. Um, you know, we've been experiencing police violence for hundreds of years, and my hope, I, I hope, is that we're heading towards the direction where we're pushing for more transformative changes, so that this type of violence does not continue. It's been almost four years since my cousin was killed, and we're still fighting for state legislation to end this this epidemic that Black and Brown and communities in poverty and marginalized communities have been facing for hundreds of years. I think right now we saw a bigger response, definitely. You know, we are in a pandemic. It's already been hard enough. And the fact that even in a pandemic, black and brown people are still being killed by the police in senseless and really vicious way is really horrible. Um, I've, you know, George Floyd's murder um, definitely sparked a lot of folks to become more active and raise their voice. And I hope that momentum can be sustainable and they can continue to, to really enact those policy changes and cultural changes that we need. Now, in, uh, based on the uh, work that you've been doing for the last four years, uh, could you tell our audience what reimagining public safety means to you and ever and other advocates uh, who are working to stop police violence? Yeah, so... Reimagining public safety, to me, it means that we need to invest in our communities with the proper resources. We need to have a culture of care and compassion instead of punishing in violent ways. For the longest time, um, 
the police has not kept black and brown folks safe. A lot of times, you know, my cousin's murder was not the only instance of police violence that I experienced. I grew up in low-income neighborhoods and neighborhoods that had gang injunctions that were overly policed and patrolled and saw a lot of folks, a lot of community members, family, um, neighbors, you know, thrown to the ground by the police, harassed, stopped, and questioned um, for just walking. And so to us, that has not been safety. And so when I imagine public safety, I imagine that our communities have access to housing, to healthcare, to quality education, that when our youth are making um, are asking for support, that we provide them support, that we provide them support that does not look like sending them to juvenile halls, that does not look to look like sending them to the cops, to funneling them into the school to prison pipeline. It means that we are investing in our communities. And right now, that has not been happening, but I hope that we're moving towards that direction. Okay, at some point I want to talk about uh, federal and state legislation, but uh, have there been any changes, uh, any movement towards reimagining uh, public safety uh, in Los Angeles, uh, you know, as a result of the George Floyd case and other instances of police violence, or is it pr still pretty much the same deal? No, I think a lot of folks have made many efforts to really... Um, try to respond to crises without involving the police and to support our communities without involving the police. We are, I think a lot of folks are starting to divest from violent institutions and understand that the police, you know, there's been numerous and numerous attempts to reform and it has still produced the same racist outcomes and the same deadly outcomes to black and brown folks. So a lot of folks have started doing processes of mutual aid, have really started questioning, well, if I know that the, a person is more likely to be harmed by the police, should I call them? What else can I do besides calling the police? They have demanded that more funding goes into our communities, into healthcare and education. Um, one of the bills that we are working on right now is um, Assembly Bill 118, that's the Crisis Act. And uh, Rashia, I'm going to ask you to talk about the state legislation, but we need to go take a short break. Okay. Our guest in this half hour is Rashia Zamora, uh, who is with the Youth, uh, Youth Justice Coalition. Uh, she is talking about reimagining public safety. Uh, and we'll be back with more of Deadline DC uh, and Rashia uh, after these messages. So don't go away. Uh, we're going to uh, discuss uh, police reform now in this half hour. And in the second half hour, we'll discuss uh, the Christ latest crisis in the Middle East. We'll be back after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, guest in this half hour is uh, Rocio Zamora from the Youth Justice Coalition, who joins us to discuss uh, reimagining public safety uh, and also uh, police reform. Uh, Rocio, 
let, let me ask a question. How do, is it that a police officer can shoot someone in the back dozens of times and escape any sort of accountability? That just seems incomprehensible. And I think it probably does to most people. So why, what's the problem here? Yeah, and... You, and that's really, really common, right? My cousin's case is not the only one of excessive force. And it's because they have no accountability. There is no system of accountability. They're investigating themselves and they're investigating their colleagues, their coworkers, and they're not gonna hold themselves accountable. So we need true accountability. And that's why state legislation, such as the police decertification, Senate Bill 2, is really important because it's actually going to start that process to remove their badges. We are one of, California is one of four states that doesn't have a police decertification process. So these police officers just jump from department to department and law enforcement agencies can't even access their records. They are so protected within our state. Um, if SB2 passes, it'll also require law enforcement agencies to contact the previous law enforcement agency that that officer is coming from to question why it is that they left because they don't they can't even get that information just police officer has police officers have so much protection um, but we don't have that same protection for our communities and so things like sb2 is a form of protection i i hope you know that if the officer who would have, who had killed my cousin had been held accountable. Maybe my cousin would have still been alive, but he wasn't. And he killed my cousin in a matter of less than a year in the same way he killed Sergio Wick. Okay. Yeah, that's horrible. Um, it's amazing that this continues to happen. Uh, are we are discussing uh, police accountability, reimagining public safety and police reform in this half hour. Um, our guest is Rocio uh, Zamora, who works with the Youth Justice Coalition. And by the way, if you're one of our radio listeners and like would like to watch us as well as listen to us, uh, you can watch us on Facebook, uh, yeah, Periscope TV at periscope.tv front slash Brad Bannon. Uh, you can watch us on Facebook at tinyurl.com front slash BB Facebook Live. And you can also watch us on YouTube at tinyurl.com front slash Brad on YouTube. Uh, Rashia, there is, uh, you talked about the legislation in California. Uh, I know Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey has introduced a federal uh, police reform bill. Uh, now, I, I know parts of it. Uh, I think it addresses some of the issues that you talked about. Uh, but uh, are there is there any movement at the local level? Have I know some cities are starting to divert police funding uh, to uh, fund uh, mental uh, health professionals. Uh, 
Uh, I know in some cases, uh, some cities are now sending mental health uh, professionals to deal with, uh, instead of police officers, to deal with uh, uh, certain kinds of emergency situations. Uh, is, is any of this, you know, while the state legislation is pending, is any of this catching on in California cities and towns? Definitely. Um, I'm actually based in, in San Diego, um, but with Stop Coalition, we're, we're statewide. But in San Diego, there have been numerous calls by community members to defund the police and to reinvest that into housing protection, into um, other social services that are going to protect the community. In 2020, um, during the budget um, hearings of the um, local city council, community members were on the call for up to 11 hours giving public comment, demanding that the police get defunded and that some of those funds go towards social services to protect the most marginalized communities. Um, we've seen this throughout the entire state and there's other um, efforts as well. I think this really relates to our Crisis Act, AB 118, because it's also providing funding to those types of organizations that can respond to issues such as mental health crisis, crises. Uh, do you think uh, that the, I think there is a movement now to take a good, hard, cold look at police activities. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously the George Floyd case garnered a lot of national uh, publicity. Uh, do you see this movement catching on with the public? Yes, yes. And I think, um, you know, you can only oppress people for so long. People are really tired. Um, we are in the middle of a pandemic where marginalized communities have been hit the hardest. And so to even get another reminder that even with pan the pandemic and COVID has hit us harder, policing is still killing us as well, if not at a higher rate than COVID is. And so it's really frustrating, but I have seen a lot of our community members just rise up and use their voices, whether it's participating in protests and severing engagement. I think, you know, I, I'm hopeful and I see it that folks are definitely beginning to get tired. And I think that's why we also have to move in a different direction of not just keeping trying to reform and reform an institution that has not changed for hundreds of years and rather thinking outside of the box of how do we really reimagine public safety without investing in institutions that have proven to be anti-Black, that have proven to be anti-poor, all of these things. And how do we more better resource our most marginalized communities so that they're not criminalized and punished in violent ways by the police? I imagine taking California as an example, uh, there's, there's a lot of opposition to reform among police groups. Uh, is, well, let's look at California. Are you going to be able to move forward in the California legislature? If we, we have a lot of community support, right? It's pretty much the community is in favor of transforming our public safety system. And the police has not been receptive to changing. No. And so that that's the battle, you know, that, that's definitely the battle. But I think, you know, like I said, it's 
it's a lot of a lot of us. It's black, brown people in poverty, allies who are really saying this is enough. And I think if we leverage our people power, I think we have a good chance of passing this legislation. But it is really getting involved. It's contacting your reps. It's learning about the policies. It's bringing other folks to the table. Um, and I think you know we are at a very pivotal time where folks are really fed up. And I'm hoping that they channel this energy into creating that that positive change. And it's a lot of us. It's a lot of yeah. us. So it's right. But I, I, I'm optimistic. I, I think we can put up a good fight. I'm well, I hope you're right. And I hope it doesn't take another tragedy uh, like we read and see about all the time about victims of police violence to reform the system because it's really horrible what's been happening. Rocio, thank you very much for joining us today. Our guest has been Rocio uh, Zamora, who is with the Youth Justice Coalition uh, based in California. And we certainly wish you uh, good luck on your endeavors. Thanks very much for joining us today on Deadline DC. Thank you. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. In this half hour, we will discuss uh, important national security issues. Uh, but before we do that, uh, we're going to listen to an update on the situation in, on, in the Gaza Strip from CNN's Nick Robertson. Nick, you've covered this conflict for a long time. You've covered others like Yugoslavia. When you look at this, does it feel to you that um, this, are you hopeful that we are moving toward a ceasefire or what, what, does what strike you is this time it's different? There seems to be this eruption of internal tension. You know, very quickly, give us just your own your own gut feeling about all this. My gut feeling is that there's a good possibility that this will de-escalate next week. Uh, certainly the U uh, meeting at the United Nations will, will, will call for that. And there's certainly pressure coming from the Biden administration for that to happen. So there's a good possibility for that. Um, nevertheless, the actual route of the conflict remains in a cul-de-sac. And the direction of travel is towards the end of that cul-de-sac. No one's opened the road out of this dead end, if you will, to really get to the root issues over, over, over land the, and, and find a lasting, durable peace solution. What may happen now will likely just be a temporary Band-Aid again. That is CNN's uh, Nick Robertson reporting on the situation in Gaza. Uh, in this half hour, we're going to discuss national security issues. Uh, our guest, uh, as he often is when we discuss national security issues, is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. He founded the company after serving in the U.S. Air Force for 26 years as an intelligence officer and attaining the rank of colonel. Colonel Layton can also be seen regularly on CNN, where he is a military analyst. His Twitter handle is at Cedric Layton, that's C-E-D-R-I-C-L-E-I-G-H-T-O-N. Uh, and his website is also uh, CedricLayton.com. 
Uh, Colonel Layton, thanks for joining us again. Uh, you know, we've been discussing uh, national security issues on the show for a number of years, and usually that means we turn to the Middle East. Uh, could you try to explain uh, to our viewers and uh, listeners what's exactly going on in Gaza now, please? Sure, Brad. It's always great to be with you. The The basic thing that's happening here is uh, Israel and the Palestinians have been at each other's throats for, uh, you know, basically since the founding of the state of Israel in uh, 1948. And what you're looking at here is finally the Palestinians a few years ago, a few decades ago, uh, got control of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. Now, these two areas were occupied by Israel after the 1967 war. Uh, that uh, war was one in which Israel decisively defeated uh, Arab armies from a whole bunch of Arab countries, Egypt, uh, Jordan, Syria, uh, just to name the main ones. And those uh, those particular actions uh, created a vast uh, number of refugees on the Palestinian side. Many of those refugees were concentrated both in West Bank areas and in the so-called Gaza Strip. Uh, the Gaza Strip is a very small area. I think it's about 700-some square miles in terms of its actual area, but it is uh, filled with over 2 million people. And uh, it's very densely populated. Uh, it is also uh, the site of a, a group, uh, the power center of a group known as Hamas. And Hamas is uh, characterized by the United States and the European Union and, of course, Israel as a terrorist organization. Uh, that is a different group from the group that runs the West Bank, uh, which is just on the other side of the Jordan River from the country of Jordan. And the West Bank uh, is run by the remnants of the old Palestinian Liberation Organization. Uh, two different groups, uh, not united at all politically. And uh, what has happened is the Israelis in this most recent situation, the Israelis uh, went into uh, areas of the, of the West Bank and especially around Jerusalem and evicted uh, a, several Arab families. Uh, that created a situation where uh, Hamas especially, but also uh, the Palestinians uh, in the West Bank have responded uh, angrily to that particular action, and they've been firing rockets into Israel. And as a result of that, uh, the Israelis are responding militarily to uh, the actions by the Palestinians. So that, in a very quick sense, is what's going on. In essence, uh, there was a provocation, the Palestinians from the sides of the Israelis, uh, the Palestinians responded to that provocation and uh, by sending rockets into Israel, and now the Israelis are responding militarily, uh, both by trying to shoot as many of those rockets down as possible uh, through their Iron Dome system, as well as using airstrikes uh, to go after Palestinian, especially Hamas, uh, intelligence nodes and command and control nodes uh, on the Gaza Strip. Now, let me ask you a question. I guess over the weekend, the United Nations Security Council uh, voted on a ceasefire. Um, every country um, voted uh, to call for the ceasefire, but the United States uh, vetoed the resolution. Uh, my first question is, why did the United States uh, veto the resolution? It's uh, If any place needs a ceasefire, it's, it's probably there. 
And this is where the diplomatic dance that occurs in the United Nations uh, is very different from what one would want to see on the ground. And even the United States government says it wants a ceasefire. They may not come out directly and say that, uh, but uh, that is exactly what they want. In fact, uh, Secretary of State Blinken has uh, made comments that indicate that uh, the U.S. is is pursuing a ceasefire as long as both sides want that. Now, in the U.N., uh, the particular resolution that you're talking about was one that uh, seemed to favor uh, the Palestinian side at the expense of Israel. And for that reason, the United States has vetoed it and it's, uh, that's fairly typical of U.S. diplomatic behavior in the United Nations. We tend to uh, you know, do what we can uh, to protect the sanctity of the state of Israel and the security of the state of Israel. And uh, the provisions of that ceasefire proposal were deemed to be very detrimental to Israel's security. So that's, that's why they did it. Whether it was the right decision or the wrong decision is, of course, another, another discussion. You know, uh, it, there's been a lot in the last few days uh, since this crisis began. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion in the United States about uh, the need for the United States uh, to uh, end its policy of favoritism uh, towards Israel and be more even-handed in uh, dealing with the plight of the Palestinians. Now, when Donald Trump was president, he was unavowedly pro-Israel. Uh, no sympathies for the uh, Palestinian cause at all, at least that I could perceive. Uh, and a lot of people are calling on the Biden, some people, some Democrats are calling on the Biden administration to be more even-handed uh, in dealing with uh, Israel and the Palestinians uh, to resolve this crisis. Uh, do you see any movement in that direction from the Biden administration? I think there is certainly very different uh, than what the Trump administration did. The Trump administration will point to it, its achievement, to what they consider to be their achievement in the Middle East, which would be the so-called Abraham Accords, which was in essence a peace treaty between uh, Israel and the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain uh, and uh, several other countries came into that mix as well. Uh, but the Abraham Accords did nothing for the Palestinians, and that was the, the primary weakness. So your assessment, Brad, that uh, the Trump administration was not uh, very pro-Palestinian is spot on. We also actually cut aid to the Palestinian Authority, and that uh, you know caused uh, a whole bunch of economic dislocations, uh, both in the West Bank and in, in Gaza for the Palestinian people. So that that is uh, you know certainly a major criticism of, of the Trump administration. As far as the Biden administration is concerned, there are some signs that they are returning to a more even-handed approach, but it may not be as far, it may not go as far as what the Palestinians uh, would want or what some more progressive Democrats are wanting here in, in the United States. And with that, uh, you know, you have to look at, uh, you know, exactly how even-handed we can be from a from a diplomatic perspective. But I think uh, Secretary Blinken's uh, statements have gone in a more even-handed direction, uh, calling for a ceasefire that both sides want. And if that happens, then we have a chance to do that. Okay, uh, in this half hour, we're going to be discussing national security issues. Uh, our guest is uh, Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired, 
who we always have on the show uh, when we discuss national security issues, uh, mainly because it's something I don't know a lot about and most Americans don't know about. And uh, Cedric is uh, always brings a great deal of clarity to the issue. We'll be right back with more Deadline DC after these messages. Welcome back to Deadline DC with Brad Bannon. Uh, We are discussing national security issues in this uh, segment. Uh, Our guest is Colonel Cedric Layton, U.S. Air Force retired. He is the founder and president of Cedric Layton Associates, a strategic risk and leadership consultancy serving global companies and organizations. Let me ask you uh, one last question about the situation in Gaza uh, before we uh, turn the page. Uh, Do you agree with uh, Nick Robertson's assessment from CNN that this is uh, going to get the situation is going to get worse and we you know how do you see this situation playing out Cedric? Brad I think uh, Nick Robertson is uh, probably right about this these situations tend to get worse before they get better Uh, I think what will happen is there'll be an intensification of the bombing runs that the Israelis are conducting against targets in Gaza Uh, At some point, of course, the Israelis are going to run out of targets uh, and they're going to be ready for a ceasefire. Um, Of course, the Palestinians, especially Hamas, are going to have to also agree to something like that. And, uh, you know, both of these sides are uh, frankly, uh, you know, a bit stubborn in their in their resolve in these in these situations. So it will probably take, uh, you know, maybe about a week uh, or maybe a little bit longer before we get to a ceasefire. And of course, in the meantime, uh, people on both sides uh, in Israel and in uh, Gaza are going to be suffering. And that's that's the sad part about this. Yeah, it's uh, very sad. Do you think uh, Israel is hurting its, you know, a standing in in the United States uh, and in the world community by being so, you know, being so aggressive, you know, the bombings and everything. Uh, I mean, I've seen some of the videos of Israeli jets bombing the Gaza Strip. And like you said, it's a small place that has two million people in it. A lot of people are dying. Do you think Israel is damaging its, its standing across the world? Absolutely. I mean, on the on the you know technical side, if you will, and it's kind of hard to get technical when you're dealing with human lives. But but uh, you know you do have to say that the Israeli military is a, a very good fighting organization. Uh, but having said that, uh, you know that's about the only thing uh, that is enhancing Israel's image at the present time. At this point in time, I think you know with the attacks on the AP and the Al Jazeera uh, headquarters uh, for Gaza. So the, the bureaus for Gaza, uh, that uh, you know, always sheds a negative light on Israeli actions, no matter how careful they are in their targeting process. And uh, the very fact that uh, the uh, proportion of casualties is so much higher on the Palestinian side compared to the Israeli side also uh, serves to negatively influence uh, people's perceptions of Israel, both in this country as well as globally. And uh, that's uh, that's something that the Israeli 
always, I think, have to be very careful of uh, because if you you can win the war on the battlefield or in the skies above the battlefield, but if you lose the perception campaign, uh, it's very hard to call it a victory. Yeah, and I think uh, Israel is in grave danger of losing the perception campaign. Uh, let's change subjects now. Uh, last week, uh, a the Colonial Pipeline, uh, which serves the southeast in the United States, was hacked. Uh, they closed down the pipeline for a while, and that caused gas shortages in Florida and other places in the southeast. Uh, and apparently, and this is what I'd like you to talk about, it was a hack, a, from what I've read, a hack, a Russian hack. And, you know, the fact that they were able to shut down this pipeline, hacking it, uh, is really scary because, you know, if they can shut down a pipeline, what else can they shut down? The, the electric grid, whatever. Could you tell us exactly what you see, saw happening? Sure, Brad. The the big thing about this attack was now it you know with the cybersecurity world, which is kind of this esoteric, uh, very technical area, has become real for a lot of people. You know, the minute that you get into a gas line uh, that is caused by a shortage, that is caused by a ransomware attack, uh, cybersecurity or the lack of cybersecurity becomes a very real thing to deal with. Uh, so this particular attack, uh, attributed by the U.S. government to uh, a gang, a criminal gang called Darkside, or at least nicknamed Darkside, uh, that uh, is engaged in ransomware uh, attacks against entities in the U.S. and other places. It's based in Eastern Europe, probably Russia, uh, and the FBI has said, uh, you know, this is this is where it's from. Now, I can tell you from research uh, that. Uh, people that I work with have done, uh, we're not quite sure that it's necessarily the Russians or just the Russians. So the jury's, in our minds at least, is a little bit out on that. Uh, you know, it's highly likely that the Russians were involved. And uh, with that, that means that the Russian state was involved. And I realize that the uh, president of the United States has uh, been very careful not to attribute it directly to uh, the country of Russia or the government of Russia, but uh, everything that is done in Russia is done with the knowledge and the at least the acquiescence of the, the regime there. So that's that's one point. But the other point is a bit of a more technical one, but I'll, I'll state it in simple terms. Uh, the coding that was used to actually uh, mount the ransomware attack, to launch the ransomware attack, uh, was not as precise as you normally see with Russian attacks. Uh, and that could possibly point to the involvement of another country, possibly China, in this attack as well. Uh, so there's there are these technical issues that are surrounding it. And then you also have to look at uh, cyber attacks as being an instrument of state policy in certain cases. And when you look at uh, knocking out a, uh, a large gas pipeline like uh, uh, this, this pipeline is, uh, that tends to fit in with the types of activities uh, that governments hostile to the United States would like to do. They would like to disrupt our daily lives, and there's nothing better uh, that you can do to disrupt our daily lives than to cut off our fuel supplies, and uh, this ransomware attack was an example of that. 
Now, you know, I, I found this whole thing very scary in a lot of ways. Uh, you know, it seems to me, you know, I've again, this is your area of expertise and why we have you on the show. But, you know, I've heard people say that the future of warfare is cyber warfare. And this incident, the hack of the colonial pipeline, suggests to me uh, that we have this great advanced military uh, with all sorts of, you know, air, you know, warplanes and tanks and aircraft carriers. Um, but it seems to me we probably have a two bit system to protect our infrastructure. And if cyber warfare is the warfare of the future, it seems to me that we're United States is in a very vulnerable position and maybe we should be paying more attention to that and uh, less attention spending all this money on all these advanced uh, uh, warfare systems, which may be, uh, you know, the proverbial case of fighting the last war while the new one, new cyber war breaks out. What are your thoughts on that? Sure. Well, it's it, you know it's a common criticism of military professionals that they always fight the last war, and you're absolutely right that that is a real problem. It's uh, you know this issue of a lack of imagination and a lack of understanding what comes next. It certainly affected people in World War II. It affected us in Vietnam, and uh, to some extent, it's affected us in both Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, but those are wars of the past, and uh, yes, you do need to maintain certain uh, legacy weapon systems in order to make sure that those kinds of attacks don't happen again, or at least make them make them less, uh, less severe if they do occur. But uh, you're absolutely right to say that the future of warfare definitely is migrating toward the cyber realm. And I see it as being what we call hybrid warfare, where you take elements of uh, you know, a force-on-force -force conflict where you're using uh, you know, weapon systems like planes and tanks and artillery, uh, plus uh, sabotage, plus disinformation, plus cyber attacks. That is the kind of warfare that I think we're, we're rapidly evolving into. And it is absolutely possible for wars to be fought entirely in the cyber domain. Uh, there are a lot of reasons to do that. Uh, a lot of reasons that uh, you know, the attacker gains what we call an asymmetric advantage over his adversary by, by doing those kinds of things. But yes, I do believe that uh, our defenses are completely inadequate. There's a lack of a uh, public-private partnership in cybersecurity. There are a lot of laws and procedures and policies that are that have at least up until now prevented us from totally securing our critical infrastructure. But this is the kind of wake-up call. This uh, attack on the Colonial Pipeline is the kind of wake-up call that I knew was going to be inevitable uh, when it came to this attack. Uh, Cedric, uh, thank you very much for joining us today on Deadline DC. Uh, I'm sure we will talk again soon. I want to thank our guest, uh, Rocio Zamora, uh, who joined us to talk about uh, police reform. And, of course, Cedric Layton of Cedric Layton Associates. Uh, Leslie will be back tomorrow. Be safe and be strong. Uh, we'll be back next Monday live at 3 p.m. Eastern Time or the podcast anytime. We'll see you then. 
Who doesn't want instant gratification? If you're looking for satisfaction, there's no need to wait. With Credit Karma Money, you can win cash reimbursements for debit purchases. Credit Karma Money is a brand new checking account where you can win cash reimbursements for making purchases. When you use your Credit Karma Money debit card, you can win daily instant karma purchase reimbursements on items up to $5,000. Just pay with your debit card, and if you win, you'll be notified on the spot, and your instant karma cash will be added back to your spend account. Credit Karma Money has already given away over $3 million in instant karma to over 50,000 Credit Karma members and counting. Open your FDIC insurance spend account for free. There's no minimum balance requirements, no overdraft fees, and free withdrawals from a network of over 50,000 ATMs. Credit Karma Money. Progress starts here. Right now, visit creditkarma.com slash winmoney to open your free account and start winning instant karma. Go to creditkarma.com slash winmoney to sign up for free and start winning instant karma. That's creditkarma.com slash winmoney. Instant karma is sponsored by Credit Karma. No purchase necessary. Exclusions and terms apply. See rules. Banking services provided by MVB Bank Inc. Member FDIC. Maximum balance and transfer limits apply. Hey, imagine if all your frustrations about advertising your business could be solved right now. You should know that podcast listeners are more engaged in higher converting than any other advertising medium. So try AdHub today and reap the rewards of Spreaker's self-advertising platform. It makes it as effortless as ever to be heard by thousands, regardless of the listening app they use. Visit Spreaker.com forward slash AdHub. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com forward slash AdHub and start using your advertising dollars in an impactful way.